titled track. We heard The Fall with The Littlest Rebel, Wolfgang Press Ecstasy, and Sundrips Untitled. Stick around. Catch Freeform with Eleanor next Wednesday at 3 p.m. here on WCBN 88.3 FM. Stick around. Kiss me. Kiss me hard. Wear pants. Make sure they're tight pants. Friday afternoons, Listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and I'm so happy to have Ann Stevenson here in the studio with me today. Uh, we are taping the show on the 31st of October, 2011. And thank you so much for joining me here in the studio. It's a pleasure. Very, very good to be back in Ann Arbor. Yes, this is a homecoming for you. It's a homecoming in a sense. I've been back, I think, three or four times. I graduated from Michigan in 1954, which is a long time ago. And then I got an MA degree in English with Donald Hall in, I believe, 1962. But it might have been 1961, but it was early 1960s. And I got a, a master's degree in English. So you returned because you left Ann Arbor briefly after undergrad and, and winning. I married a- and went to England, and then I came back after the divorce, and I came back with a little girl of three or four. And uh, I found my parents were living in Ann Arbor, very near where I lived on Forest Street. They lived on Olivia Avenue. And I um, used my mother uh, for a babysitter a good deal, but I also had a, a, a babysitter who took her every day, and she went to a little nursery school. So I was free to get my M.A., and, and it wasn't an MFA in those days. Nobody ever heard of it. So I was studying, I was studying Shakespeare, and I was studying um, 
I was studying Greek backgrounds, and I should have taken Greek language, but I was a coward and didn't <laughs> take that language. <laughs> I don't believe that. And I did, I did a philosophy course. I did a history course. Uh, I think my, 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 the best course I did, I think, was with G.B. Harrison on uh, Shakespeare. And I learned a great deal about Shakespeare then. And then there was Radcliffe Squires, who's teaching English, and I became his assistant in 1962. And when I was his assistant then, I discovered the poetry of Elizabeth Bishop. And, and so was... I became very excited about the poetry of Elizabeth Bishop, and that's how I became interested in well, following her way rather than what was then opening up as a kind of confessional way. And uh, I didn't really know anything about Sylvia Plath at the time, though we were contemporaries, two months between us in age. So uh, when I read Elizabeth Bishop, I was, um, I was sold on her. I was converted. And Donald Hall, who was my uh, guide and mentor at the time, um, said, all right, you have to write a book then, because I've got the Twain United States authors uh, list to complete, and since you've not written any books, why don't you write a book for Twain's United States authors on Elizabeth Bishop? So uh, I settled down to do it, and I found I, I didn't have any material in the libraries. Nobody had heard of her hardly. She'd only published one book, her early book, and so I wrote to her in Brazil, and and was given the address by Marianne Moore, who also wrote me a most eccentric and marvelous letter. How and so? And luckily, <laughs> I kept Marianne Moore's letters and all Elizabeth Bishop's letters. They, they were absolutely a revelation to me. I mean, there was an education in poetry for me, although I was writing on her. So I think the first book I wrote on Elizabeth Bishop was a bit better on me than it was on her. <laughs> Because it was really my my sort of response uh, um, as as a philosopher's daughter to her writing, which was so clear and painter-like. And in fact, I think it was Elizabeth Bishop who taught me to look. And that was the most wonderful revelation, you know. It was just, just don't think, look. <laughs> Beautiful advice. And then, and you've been writing that way ever since. I think so. I think so. The first poem I wrote that I think really was uh, uh, influenced by Elizabeth Bishop was probably Sierra Nevada. When I went out, I had married a, a sinologist, Mark Elvin, and we took uh, off at the expense of the Fulbright Committee. We took off in a car to the far west, and Mark's mother lived in California or had grown up in California, so we met her there. And we went to the Sierra Nevada, and that's where I first, I think I first began to feel that I could write this looking poems instead of thinking poems. I think I still write thinking poems, but, but uh, uh, they, they're, they're, I think they're embellished, let's say, by this looking which became so necessary at that could, time. Could we hear the Sierra Nevada poem, Anne? I think it's in here, just a minute. I think it might be the poem right before Ann Arbor in the... The book. Oh, page seven. Okay. It's quite a long poem, but I'll, I'll read it if you like. Well, 
What yeah. do you have? Yeah. That would be lovely. Well, this looking, because it seems really important that this was a moment where you understood this yes. idea of looking in a poem. Yes. Um, I think you can hear Elizabeth Bishop in it. <laughs> uh, it was dedicated to my mother-in-law, Margaret Elvin, who was a great climber in the Sineas, great follower of John Muir. And uh, I've also become, you know, a, a fan of all the kind of wilderness movements here and, and in England. Anyway, I'll read Sierra Nevada. Landscape without regrets, whose weakest junipers strangle and split granite, whose hard, clean light is utterly without restraint, whose mountains can purify and dazzle, and every minute excite us but never can offer us commiseration, never can tell us anything about ourselves, except that we are dispensable. The rocks and water the glimmering rocks, the hundreds and hundreds of blue lakes ought to be mythical, while the great trees, soon as they die, immediately become ghosts, stalk upright among the living with awful composure. But even these bones that light has taken and twisted with their weird gesticulations and shadows that look as if they've been carved out of dust, even these have nothing to do with what we have done or not done. Now as we climb on the high bare slopes, the most difficult earth supports the most delicate flowers. Gilia and harebells, calmia, and larkspur, everywhere wild lupins, tight blue spires, and fine-fingered hand-shaped leaves. If we stand in the fierce but perfectly transparent wind, we can look down over the boulders, over the drifted scree with its tattered collar of manzanita, over the groves of hemlock, the tip of each tree resembling an arm extended to a drooping forefinger. Down, down over the whole dry, difficult train of the ascent, down to the lake with its narrow, swarming edges, where little white boats are moving their oars like water bugs. Nothing but the wind makes noise. The lake transparent to its greeny-brown floor, is everywhere else bluer than the sky. The boats hardly seem to touch its surface, just as this granite cannot really touch us, although we stand here and name the colors of its flowers. The wind is strong without knowing that it is wind, the twisted tree that is not warning or supplicating, never considers that it is not wind. We think if we had to stay here for a long time, lie here like wood on these waterless beaches, we would forget our names, would remember that what we first wanted had something to do with stones, the sun, the thousand colors of water, brilliances, blues, Thank you, Anne. Well, you see, there's a quite moralized Elizabeth Bishop there already. 
And I think that the the idea that we are dispensable as human beings and uh, in a sense uh, that the, the granite does not really touch us we, is comes right through my poems, I suppose. The sense of... Uh, I, at the time, I was much influenced by, I suppose, Zen Buddhism. Uh, my husband was uh, studying uh, Chinese and Japanese, and uh, I was reading a great deal of haiku. Well, this isn't a haiku, it's too long. But, yes, yes. <laughs> but, um, but it was the influence of this, uh, the um, Japanese, ja uh, probably Chinese, um, and uh, Zen Buddhism and Taoism, in which it's always a, a kind of meditative uh, speculation that uh, nothing need to be as it is, you know. And that goes right through contemporary poems now. And I, I love the idea of the uh, the seeing your eye moving across the landscape and feeling the tenderness of the seeing and talking about the naming and how the naming disappears, even though the the thing itself does not. <laughs> Yes, well, uh, it's one of the themes I've come back to again and again that words connect with life, but they aren't life. <laughs> yes. Uh, words always, we, we describe our experience, but we never completely, completely describe it, nor can we describe the nature of being, the nature of anything. And that's that. The, that that's, the, that's, that's very Taoist. Yes, <laughs> and that's the the struggle of of the poems yes, themselves, yes. but or the non-struggle. <laughs> yes, and um, Elizabeth Bishop also admired Darwin, uh, and she read the Voyage of the Beagle when she was in Brazil, and we we corresponded. She wrote me a wonderful letter about Darwin, which is uh, in the, my letters from Elizabeth Bishop have recently been published by Farrar, Giro, and Scrous in two volumes of Elizabeth Bishop's collected poems and prose. And my letters from Elizabeth were finally published in the prose and a few letters from me to her. It's quite, I'm very pleased that those letters have now been published because although she knew poets like Lowell far better, I was just a student. I was writing to her as an outsider and she felt free to describe what she wrote about and what she felt about writing to me, but uh, as she probably would not to somebody who knew her better than I did. So that was a great advantage. And she may have felt that she wanted to um, sh show share something with you, a young poet mm -hmm. who was coming to her um, sort of with an, yeah, an open liked, heart. <laughs> she liked being written about. I think she liked being discovered because, of course, she wasn't really found, discovered, uh, until after my first book was published. And then, of course, now she's one of the, uh, well, she's considered one of the great uh, American poets. But at that time, she was scarcely known. That's why I wrote to her. There was no material in the library. So, that, that is sort so of... So it is. And, and it's amazing because you were... Well, Anne, you were writing poems when you were here as an undergrad. Yes. And that's when you won the Hopwood Award, right? As an undergrad, is it? And, or am I uh, yes, I wore, missing uh, the timing? Uh, I won, I think, a Hopwood Award in 54, but I won two lower... I won three Hopwoods here. Okay. But, but the major Hopwood I wore... <laughs> 
I won when I was uh, graduating, yes, my last year. Because what I was thinking is that, so you had already been writing these poems as an undergrad, but then when you returned, after being away for a while, and you were here getting your master's and then working with Donald Hall. Donald Hall, chiefly, yes. but also with Radcliffe Squires. Mm. They were very different influences on me. I mean, Hall was in the thick of the, the American establishment, you might say, whereas Squires was always an outsider. And um, I learned from them both. I, I really liked them both very much. Donald was a wonderful teacher, a great teacher, really. I've uh, spoken with him. On he was, yes. He was a wonderful teacher. He introduced me to Stevens, for instance. And, uh, and pushed you in also a scholarly direction to be able to articulate your ideas mm -hmm. about the writing. in a. Yes, right. Oh, I, I mean, and he knew everyone who was then uh, coming up, Louis Simpson, for instance who I like very much, and uh, Robert Bly, who was a very, who came and uh, was, I, I didn't like him so much, but Denise Levikoff came and I, I, I enjoyed her. I, when we had lots of, lots of English poets came too. So it was a wonderful time for me and I felt, well, oh, oh I know who else was here then, uh, X.J. Kennedy, who I enormously enjoyed. And he, I don't know if he was teaching or was a graduate student, I can't remember. And who wrote uh, Hart's Needle, Snodgrass? Um, yes, all these people were poets there around, around Donald Hall. And um, Keith Waldrop was another one. And uh, his wife, Rosemary, oh, who yes. was uh, a great admirer of Paul Solan. And her and I introduced me to Paul Solan, who I think oh. was a very great poet. Yes, yes. So you know, it was a very fertile time to be there in the early 60s, to be here in, at Michigan. And I've, I've tentatively kept up with all these people. I mean, Radcliffe Squires has now died. And uh, Donald's holed away in, uh, in, in New Hampshire. Um, so and I think I've seen uh, the Waldrops in Paris, but not recently. So uh, it, it breaks up. And I, I've been in touch quite recently with X.J. Kennedy, Joe Kennedy. <laughs> the, X was a, <laughs> the, the X was a bit of a... A hook to catch a reputation on, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I like it. It works. Yes, right. But anyway, it was a very, very good group. And uh, and all sort of, it was very varied, as it was when I was, in, in, um, when I was a senior here in, in college. We had an inter-arts group here, which was also very varied. And I wrote a dance drama, and it was set to music by a composer called, Carl Magnuson, and my great friend from high school, Jamie Ross, did the decorations and did the artwork for it. And so I, I, have, I associate Michigan with an enormous spur in inspi inspiration and creation. Uh, Ed Chertikoff's still here, who was in composing. Bob Cogan, who I've recently seen in, in, in Cambridge. I, all these people, most musicians, artists, uh, writers of all kinds. Um, I, I owe Michigan an enormous amount, you know. Well, and I feel like Michigan feels the same way about you. And just recently, didn't they um, award the honorary, an honorary doctorate from that, the university? Was I think that, that was last year. Was it? Yes. Yes. That was, that was, very, uh, that was very honorific. Or was it? No, I think it was 2009. Over the years. I can't, it was 2009, I think, two years ago. 
time gets um, away from you when you grow older. <laughs> it goes slipping by before you know what's happened. <laughs> well, what I love is I can see, Anne, that it's, well, yes, I can only, I, I feel it as well, um, the time uh, slipping past. Um, but you, I can tell how much you love this place itself. And you've been a person who has, um, even from the first person, first poem that we've read, the, the Sierra Nevada, where you're driving across the country and then you're also hopping across or flying across the pond to, to England and <laughs> Wales and back and forth, living this, this place in different areas of the, of the world. Um, but such a warmth for Ann Arbor. As we were driving here, you were pointing to buildings and places where you had lived. Yes. And it felt <laughs> as if it could have been... Yes, much has changed. So close. But um, most of the places I've lived, including Helen Newbery and Martha Cook, uh, are both here. And of course, I grew up on Olivia Avenue, 904 Olivia Avenue, where my father, uh, he, mother lived. My mother was then Louise... Uh, who died in 1963, and my father, Charles Stevenson. And I've written many poems to them and about them and about growing up. I went to high school at U University High School, which is no more now. But I had a wonderful education there with three excellent English teachers. And, so, you, and so, you also loved music at that point, too. And I was were... going to be a pianist, and then I was going to be a cellist. But when I got to Michigan, I was going to be an actress and a dancer and a poet, and I heaven knows what. Um, I've spread myself far too thin. But it all came back, I think, in the poetry, which um, focused me finally, uh, and which I think has in sense helped my life, because I've been writing poetry all my life, but I've had a very varied and, uh, I suppose, in some ways, upset sort of life with trying to live in England with three different husbands, and uh, I always married Englishmen. Uh, I'd, so I married an Englishman and then came back to Ann Arbor, and then I married Mark, and then that broke up after uh, two sons. And uh, we're, still, we're still friendly. I think we get on very well, but I think it wasn't a marriage I wanted to go into too deeply because I needed my own time for writing. And uh, in fact, I was, I shouldn't have ever been married, probably, but <laughs> here I was. And uh, so, uh, and then I lived um, with a poet in Glasgow, and then I lived with a, a man who was a tra training in agriculture, <laughs> and we married, and that came to nothing. And finally, I found my dear Peter, <laughs> Peter Lucas, who I'd known for a very long time from Cambridge, England. And he grew up in Cambridge, England. So we married in 1986, I think. And we have had a quiet life ever since. I haven't moved except from Wales to London to Durham. And we've moved to Durham now from uh, from Cambridge. We've, but we have a base in Cambridge too with friends. So I suppose it ne I never stopped this restless movement, and uh, except now I feel, well, I'm ready now to s say that's the end. <laughs> well, and, well no. we're, we're looking here at this, this photo on the cover of the Blood Axe edition of Anne Stevenson Poems 1955 to 2005, and I can see how, like, finding a place, and, and this is in Durham? Yeah, no, that's in or, Wales. Or in Wales. North, yeah. North Wales. 
and I um, I associate it with the home in Vermont that I had as a, a teenager, and uh, I sometimes called Wales Vermont by mistake. <laughs> They're quite different, but they have the same geological contours, because uh, when the when the Atlantic split open, mm. uh, you know, at one point, uh, I can't tell you how many million years ago, but. Uh, anyway, the same rock formations. They were neighbors. They, they were neighbors, neighbors and now they're split apart. <laughs> so the tectonic plates drew them apart and we'll probably draw them together again. Who knows? Yeah, we'll, we'll see. We shall see. Maybe yes. not Maybe not. You shall not. not no, we shall not see. <laughs> no, we shall not see. We can imagine. We can um, imagine. Anne, would you mind reading the poem, um, Making Poetry, since we're starting to talk about this idea of um, sort of what it takes to have a, choosing a life where poems are going to be a part of your life the whole the whole way yes i will i um i wrote this poem when i was a fellow in writing at uh, newcastle university which is quite close to durham i was fellow in writing at newcastle and durham in the 1980s the late 1980s uh, and i was trying to explain to my class which was a small class why poetry was important. And I finally came up with a, a poem rather than with an essay or rather lecture. And I read this poem to them and explained it. Uh, it, was, it. It rose out of questions from the class, making poetry. You have to inhabit poetry if you want to make it. And what's to inhabit, to be in the habit of, to wear words sitting in the plainest light, in the silk of morning, in the shoe of night, a feeling bare and frondish in surprising air, familiar, rare. And what's to make, to be and to become words passing weather, to serve a girl on terrible terms, embark on voyages over voices, evade the ego hill, the misery well, the siren hiss of published success, published success, success, success. And why inhabit make inherit poetry? Oh, it's the shared comedy of the worst blessed the sound leading the hand, a word life running from mind to mind through the washed rooms of the simple senses, one of those haunted, undefendable, unpoetic crosses we have to find. And that says just about everything I want to say about poetry. <laughs> That's a manifesto. It is a manifesto. It is a kind of manifesto, yes. Um, the uh, the girl on terrible terms is is the muse, I suppose. You you serve the muse. You serve your um, uh, whatever drives you to write poetry, and it's not always very com comfortable. It's usually uncomfortable. Or clear. Yes, right. Or even clear. Pardon? Or even clear. Sometimes yes, something not even clear. That's right, all. But the 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 muse is a familiar figure, and in almost all cultures, there is a element of poetry which is unconscious. It's the subconscious. But if you call it the muse, you know, in a sense, you never know it, and you can't test it. 
But when it's wrong, you know it's wrong. <laughs> And it's a very peculiar dependency on this unconscious stream of, of, of words which you consciously need to organize. <laughs> the consciousness has to somehow discover the unconscious and, and work with it. But you can't forget it. And therefore, the, the problem arises, how are we going to do this? And for me, it happens through rhythm. All through rhythm, not necessarily meter, but because I think meter can distract distract you, and it can just become the dum da dum da dum da dum da dum. It works sometimes, but many times it doesn't. So you have to play against the meter, the meaning against the meter, the rhythm even against the meter, the language against the meter, and it's that playing around which is so much like music. It's very much like music. So writing a poem is, for me, closer to writing music than to writing prose. And even in my free verse, I think, I think you can hear that the lines end where they end, and there's a rhythmic beat that is like the beat in music. You can put small syllables between the strong syllables as you can in music, and you hold long syllables and you shorten like in eighth notes or sixteenth notes or thirty-second notes. You can put little words in between the strong notes. And as you're composing, Anne, are mm-hmm. you also um, are you reading it aloud? Are you? Is it something that's um, you're, oh. you've already got some of the lyric coming to you, and then you're well. That's uh, the sound leading the hand, and it, it's always the sound leading the hand. Um, uh, I don't say my lines out loud, but I hear them in the inner ear, you know. So I always, everything I do with sound, uh, I hear as I'm writing it. And since I've gone deaf, uh, I can hear myself and I can hear you because I have technologically wonderful miracles in my ears. But uh, if I didn't have, uh, if I didn't have hearing aids, I could hear nothing at all. So, um, I do hear things in my, well, sleep, or sometimes I hear rhyme, lines giving, like, like measures in music. And like music today, I mean, it's a, a matter of learning new rules, of, of, of breaking old rules or extending them or uh, trying to work with rhythms that are new, sounds that are new, not entirely inherited. And yet, if you don't inherit poetry, if you don't inherit the tradition somewhere, if you don't know Shakespeare, for instance, you don't know Chaucer, you don't know uh, even the alliterations of the uh, Anglo-Saxons and so forth, if you don't know these, uh, you, you're, you're swimming in, in water you don't understand. It's, it's, uh, I think that the idea that you just express yourself in poetry is completely flawed. <laughs> So you, you work with the tradition all the time. And there's another element you've got. You've got your, your, your experience. And you've got the language. And you've got the tradition. And uh, you've got your unconscious and conscious. And you somehow or other get it together. And that, that's poetry. And that's, that's the mystery of it, too, isn't it? That somehow or another. Yes. It doesn't always work. I mean, I think... For instance, a, a very big book of poems, like my poems, <laughs> 1955 to 2005, 
I suppose at least a third of those poems I could drop. The, I mean, I, would, I wouldn't feel like defending them now. But that leaves two-thirds that I think are still readable, and that's a pretty good proportion. I hope. You are listening to The Living Writers Program on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. a chance to to do your own selected where you actually are the person that is selecting the poems and they're and shaping how they're next to each other have yes i did the selecting for the poems 1955 to 2005 so in the blood i did it with the help of my husband peter who suggested that since i came back to the same themes every decade no, although I changed the form, but I kept writing the same themes. Why don't I put them in little galleries, he said, like a museum, and put poems that are, say, family poems, and uh, which I called Seven Ages, the family poems, place poems, philosophical poems, metaphysical poems, uh, verses, which I've written many just, just verses, and then there's a long section on In Memoriam, on elegies and death poems. And that, for me, worked. And each section I did arrange chronologically. So I put the earlier poems and then the last poems in the same section. Then I start again with early poems and last poems. Um, and it was interesting to me to see how I did come back to the same theme. For instance, that Sierra Nevada I've come back again and again to the dispensability of human nature, which I don't, I mean, I don't want to dispense with it. Well, sometimes I do, yes, yes. But I mean, no, not really. But it's just the, a way of seeing oneself as part of the uh, ecological pattern on Earth. And you feel particularly committed to save the environment when you understand the precariousness in which the environment environment stands today. And especially when, um, you know, they will, uh, uh, developers will never stop. And they'll never stop working for short-term ends, such as this pipeline they want to put (laughs) through from Canada to Texas. Uh, It it just might pollute the water uh, of, of, of Nebraska completely. It might do any amount of harm, and anyway, if you if you uh, drain those oil fields in Alaska and burn that oil, that's the end of the climate. I listened to the scientists 
Yeah, and I think politicians should to listen to the scientists and think in long terms. So I become more and more committed to the sort of working with the environment, and and my husband being a Darwin scholar, I've written a quite a lot of poems, which I think, well, use the sort of scientific view rather than the religious view, which is the usual, usual focus for poetry and has been throughout. But I don't abandon the religious or the sacred uh, because I think anyone who understands um, that life is, is so amazing and so astonishing and understands that you need both dimensions. You need, you need the scientific and you also need the sense of awe with which one approaches life itself. And which is present in your poems. And that's that, why that they're, they are... That is, that's, that, that's there, yes. I think that's there in more and more poems now. And it's what uh, it's that quality too that will make poems lasting. Sorry, that that's that quality that will make the poems lasting as well. Well, I hope they'll last. Some of them, everyone, but of course everything will go eventually. <laughs> but I, I'd like granite. them to uh, last. Shall Should I read this poem called? Um, it's the first poem of my new book, and my new book is called um, Astonishment, and I think it will be my last book because um, I'm going to be 80 next year. Well, in 2013, I'll be 80. And I wanted to have a, a book out for my 80th birthday, and then maybe sort of, well, maybe I'll start to be a novelist. <laughs> I think 80 years is enough. So, um, you know, I, I, uh, so I've, I'm sort of working around using uh, uh, the environment as a, as a frame for this book a good deal. And I'm also writing a good deal in sonnet form to get back into a more regular sonnet form. And this poem is actually a sonnet. It's 14 lines and it rhymes regularly throughout A, B, A, B, A, B, A, B, so forth with a, with a uh, couplet at the end. And one thing that pleased me in it, and it's rather egotistical, uh, that I have managed to rhyme, uh, switch a light on uh, with uh, a young cello playing Anne Stevenson. So light on rhymes with Anne Stevenson. And um, I, I dared, uh, just dared, I thought, well, do I dare put my name in this poem? Well, I'll see how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> and so, right. But um, this is a, it looks back to my music playing in Ann Arbor. Um, and it, I remember the cello teachers I had one of whom was in New Haven, Mr. Trutzvig. But my cello teacher in Ann Arbor was Mr. Edel. And he was the most wonderful man and played in the Stanley Quartet all the time I was here in college. Um, he's now dead, and I'm sure Mr. Trutzvig is dead. So this is a little tribute to the cello teachers, to the cello, and to the writers of cello concerti. All dead, but still living. You know. It's called How Astonishing. How astonishing that this is my wild left foot I'm freeing from a lycra sock. That these arthritic fingers once belonged to my bow hand, slaves to a cello named Caesar and to Johann Sebastian Bach, whose solo suite number five in C minor, the Sarabande, is quietly fingering my memory, resignation, and truth.
that I can lean over a flicker switch and a light will go on surprises me, as does nodding to sleep, book in hand, and flicking it off. To revive in the dark a young cello-playing Anne Stevenson, along with strict Mr. Trustwick, Trusy in New Haven, and soft-smoking Mr. Edel, feared and adored in Ann Arbor. Both by now dead, living on in their beautiful instruments. Even Herr Haydn, Signor Baccarini, Monsieur Saint-Saëns, and Mr. Elgar, long dead, are alive in those concertos I never quite learned to play before I listened to my deafness. So this is my left foot, poetry. That's a sonnet, <laughs> a, a contemporary sonnet. Yes. That was lovely, Anne. Thank you. My left foot poetry. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, oh, that, that's all the true confessions. <laughs> ah. That's it. Um, Anne, so, so the, I, I also wanted to talk with you a little bit about the, the, the idea of this, this, well, this last, this last book and, and writing elegy and thinking about time, um, is it, when you're writing the poems, are you feeling that there's these different, um, even though there's themes that unite the work, yes. um, there's a different reason for the writing at the moment than there has been when you were a young poet and maybe trying to find your way into articulating quite right ideas yes i i think one becomes a different person as one gets older but it's it's like putting on it's like a tree that starts as a, a you know tender sapling and then you put on rings of being around that 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 central bit so you gradually leave it behind and uh, you become a, a different you come the, you're the same tree but a completely different shape and an outlook and uh, it, it, the, the metaphor doesn't always work but I, I think that's the way I feel about growing older it doesn't worry me growing older I've written quite a, a few poems about about dying uh, and uh, you know uh, and none of them are, are terribly um, mournful. I'm certainly not uh, a misery well in any way. Uh, some some of them are quite funny. Uh, but um, <laughs> one does begin to think uh, differently about one's whole life and career in relationship to the world you live in. I myself have found that I become less ambitious. Well, maybe you, you could say, well, you've been successful, but I haven't been that successful. I... I haven't given in to any kind of uh, fashion or group uh, at all. I've remained myself all these years, and that has put me outside the establishment, as it were. So um, I think Andrew Motion did me a great favor by uh, writing an introduction to the selected poems in the Library of America series uh, by pointing out that I hadn't really done anything to bring attention to myself as a celebrity or any kind of thing. I, I couldn't possibly do that anyway. It's counter to my whole 
feeling about being a private person. And I, I'm one with Emily Dickinson, you know, don't go out and, and try to tell everyone that you're an actress, for instance. <laughs> or I mean, actresses do that. But even actresses have to be, have to keep their integrity as actresses and not just play to the crowd. And I think there's a quite enough playing to the crowd these days in all fields, um, and arts. particularly politics, but we won't go into that. <laughs> but I think in the arts and in sport and in television and in radio, there's far too much egotism, far too much emphasis on if I don't succeed, you know, maybe everybody will forget me. Well, it seems like you couldn't hear the muse or the, have that fusion with the subconscious Yes. And the conscious, if you were being, you would be misguided. Exactly. And you cannot desert the muse. I mean, you cannot desert her. And as soon as you do, off she goes. I've seen it happen with poet after poet. Start, poets start very, very fine. I would take her as an example, for instance, poor Dylan Thomas, who really has a, had enormous talent. And yet, Thomas... Um, Apart from the fact that he drank himself to death, which, which was a horrible mistake, but he was taken up and made a fuss of, and he responded. He should have, he should have taken his wife's advice and retired to Lahane and stayed in that, that hut on the pier where he wrote his poems and never come back to America. But he couldn't resist it. He couldn't resist it. And that kind of urge for publicity, for attention. I think it's the reverse of a feeling that when you're younger as a poet, you feel that you are not understood by your contemporaries. Sylvia Plath felt it in high school. I felt it in high school. <laughs> you know, I was outside the, the ring outsider. of the popular girls, and I would have liked to have been popular, but I never, I never thought I would ever, ever be popular. Now, certainly my grandmother didn't. She thought by going to these plays like the Cocktail Party uh, and uh, sophisticated uh, French plays like Camus, you know, that I would never get what she called beau. Oh, and you'll never get boys. You'll never get boys. And I said, I don't care. <laughs> you want art. It, yes. <laughs> that was when, when I was in high school and, and college. Uh, I had I had no trouble getting boys later. It, it seems so. <laughs> yes, but um, <laughs> defend them off, Anne. The, the, <laughs> but it wasn't. Um, it's just just. It was very necessary right from the beginning to to, to carve your own, well, uh, route. Make your own uh, route through the world. Direct yourself with the direction of of the muse or whatever your inspiration is. To remain faithful to that, and um, it's it's very hard to know that it, it's uh, that the muse is always going to be there for one thing. <laughs> However, um, it, you have long periods. Everybody has long periods of writing block, and then what you do is you do a lot of reading. You do a lot of reading of poetry. You find mm -hmm. someone like uh, Emily Dickinson, for instance, very recently, but always Yeats, Frost. Uh, and, oh, one time it was Browning, and one time it was... Uh, even Tennyson's come back. I've begun to understand Tennyson much more than I, you know. The metaphysicals, you know, anybody. Uh, Dead Poets Society, really. 
and uh, and and contemporary poets too. I mean, Richard Wilbur, for instance, and Anthony Hecht, as well as uh, Sylvia and uh, Elizabeth Bishop. So it's that. But it's just that when you can't do it, you know, try try to water the roots a bit, and <laughs> that's my advice anyway. And it it's and it seems. Uh, really amazing to me that also you had this this fire and this independence through this entire through this so even when you had to water the roots sometimes yes, yes. <laughs> um, there was still um, and through different relationships and having children and having these different parts of your life that demanded different things of you at different times that you really you did keep faith with the poems, there was something about the making and the writing that that. But that you have to keep faith away. with life too. Yes, I mean that's what I mean. You you can't just keep faith with poetry. I think poetry is too much of a poetry is too much of a ghetto at the moment. People take MFAs in poetry, and then they only know other poets, and then they 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 give each other readings and so forth. I think you want to communicate with the outside. It's not like. Philosophers and mathematicians talk to philosophers and mathematicians, but poets need to talk to everybody. And, and listen to the trees. I think so. I think poets should try to talk to everybody. And, uh, that, anyway, is my, my mission. I, th- I try to get poetry out there. But uh, without um, dumbing down in any way, without compromising with my high standards. But if you can explain it, you know, you get there. If you explain, you have to have reasonably intelligent people listening and people who haven't made up their mind in advance they didn't like poetry, but <laughs> you can't do anything. But it was that situation. Anne, anyway. will you read another poem? Well, what would you like me to read at the end? Well, shall we? Well, maybe we could even hear a couple if that's not too greedy, but should we hear the Ann Arbor one? And would that be a good one? And then one of the new ones again. Whatever, whatever you'd love to read, I'd love oh, to hear. Well, that's a very old one, that Ann Arbor it's, one. Yes. Well, then let's hear something. Well, let well, me read this one. Yes. Uh, this is a, a quite new one, and it's called An Exchange in the Time Bank. And it makes puns on financial terminology and emotional terminology throughout. So when I ask for change... You know, I mean, change money and change, you know. <laughs> uh, when I talk about equable returns, I also mean equity, you know, with lifetime invested, well, invested or earned. And um, corporeal rules means corporate rules, you know, in a sense. So I play with it all. That's right. It's, it's not a serious poem, but it is serious. An exchange in the time bank. I eased my life down gently on the counter and asked for change. How would you like it, smiled the teller. I'm sure we can arrange an equable return. Will you take it in days? Summer days, I suggested. Dividends and age-based percents are what the policy pays. So with my lifetime invested, how much, say, from deposits age 3 to 15, will I have earned? In retrievable memories? Yes, that's what I mean. Well, that would depend on how much capital you invested in childhood and on interest received. 
but with bonuses and health and good luck, I should with respect have saved quite enough boom time to set against losses in depression years. The teller threw me a shrewd look. Trust us, he said. All arrears will be balanced faithfully once your account is safe on our database. But keep in mind that corporeal rules are not about to be bent in your case, nor are indemnities settled on your lifespan, I regret to say, renewable. And though for senior investors we do what we can, it's not possible for post-70 saving grants to be guaranteed. I eyed my old life, sadly, where it lay gazing upwards, waiting to be keyed, uninsured, into eternity. Okay, I'll take it back. He shook his head. My dear, it isn't there. I reached but clung to something that disintegrated, smoke in a puff of air. A dream's liquidity, a failed currency, a mintage, surely a rarity valued, trusted, hoped for, ever believed in, volatile as money. Thank you, Anne. That, I, I love that. Thank you. And that you say, talk to people. Poets must talk to people <laughs> and be in the world. Well, we live in a world which is in which... Money is increasingly volatile. <laughs> so I wrote this to the occasion. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, I don't. I I know you said you were going to um, have this book come out, which I can't wait for the book to come out in when you turn eighty, um, and then that you're going to turn to be a novelist. And I do. No, I was joking. Oh, oh, okay. I, I was joking. Well, I know you have lots of stories up your sleeve, but I feel like they must always be coming out in all the poems. Because I've tried again and again to write short stories. I like short stories, and I, and I read them all the time. Uh, I'm a great admirer of Alice Munro. Oh, yes. I, I, you know, uh, she's one of the finest artists in our living. I wish I could write like that. Uh, but every time I start a, po a, a, a story, it somehow turns into a poem. A poem. So <laughs> <laughs> The muses picked you, Anne. So no. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think I'll write a novel, but I've always intended to. My sister writes novels. Laura Stevenson writes good novels. The one who lives in, in Vermont. Vermont. Yes, oh. yes. Oh, lovely. Laura C. Stevenson. She's written a very good novel about Vermont called Return in Kind. Oh, I'll have to read that one. And, uh, it's published by the New England Press. Oh, so. lovely. Uh, well, then we'll have to have to yes. talk with her on the show as well. Then, <laughs> well, if she'd love, I mean, uh, I think um, she'd love she'd love to be on the show. Uh, she was going to come, but her husband's really very ill. He's a poet, Christopher, not Christopher Reeve, the father of Christopher Reeve, Franklin Reeve, uh, who was a poet. And his son was, of course, Superman, who, who, who had this terrible accident on horse and uh, died, you know, paralyzed, but very, very courageous. Uh, Yes. So um, and we are, I suppose, a writing family. My sister Diana was the only one who turned into a, a musician. And she's a violinist and a violist, and she's married to a, a violinist, a Hungarian violinist named Gabriel Benat, who's written on all types of music. He's really a musicologist and a violinist. So, so um, you're all out so in the world we're making. So we're all three of us. If anybody was going to write a book, 
or any kind of uh, monograph about me, I would suggest he wrote on all three of us because uh, my father, uh, I think he was proud that his daughters all uh, played music and, uh, you know, worked uh, as independent people before feminism even became an issue. <laughs> and he said he was very pleased to have daughters because, you know, so few women did things in the world. He wouldn't say that now. <laughs> he wouldn't say no, that. No, he wouldn't. And no, he'd probably say too many. <laughs> and, and thank you so much for talking with me today on the program. Well, it's been a great pleasure, and thank you for asking me the right questions. And let's hope we talk again, because I would love it. I would oh, well. love it. <laughs> Anne Stevenson has been on the program on Living Writers today to, to my such happiness. Um, Anne Stevenson, Poems 1955 to 2005 with Blood Axe Books. Also, Five Looks at Elizabeth Bishop. Um, Stone Milk, most recently from Blood Axe. We know that we've got one to look forward to that will be coming out next year. And of course, our Anne Stevenson Selected Poems with Andrew Motion as editor um, from the Poetry Foundation published by the Library of America. Thanks again to Ann Stevenson. Thanks for listening out there. Until next time. Thank you. from all the cultures, of all the people, 
This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, December 7th, 2011. In Los Angeles, I'm Dorian Marina. Coming up, Philadelphia ends its pursuit of the death penalty against Mumia Abu-Jamal. In Durban, as rich nations stall in their pledges to cut greenhouse emissions, poor countries push for a fund to help them adapt to climate change. And U.S. lawmakers debate an extension of the payroll tax set to expire this month. Those stories and more, but first, this news. I'm Jess Burns with headlines for FSRN. Today, Yemen officially formed a coalition government with 35 cabinet positions divided evenly between the ruling party and the opposition. The change comes after President Ali Abdullah Saleh signed onto a Gulf Cooperation Council power transfer agreement last month. Al Jazeera reports the new cabinet will rule for three months, then elections will take place. Egypt's military council announced today it has given the interim prime minister more executive power, but the military says it will retain control of the army and courts. FSRN's Rami Amagari reports from Egypt. A brief statement by the military council revealed that interim prime minister Kamal al-Jinzuri will be granted broader power to reign in the country amidst unrest. Later in the day, al-Jinzuri hinted at the possibility of forming a new cabinet. The statement adds that Egypt's ruling military council will retain absolute military powers across the country until parliamentary and presidential elections come to an end next year. On Tuesday, the military said it will not resort to violence against protests. But over the past few weeks, 42 people have been killed and hundreds of others wounded by riot police in Cairo's Tahrir Square. Meanwhile, the 